Everyone has to start somewhere, and for Fidel Castro, one of the most substantial figures in 20th century politics, it all started with the 26th of July movement. Taking its name from the day that Cuban revolutionaries first took up arms against their own government, the 26th of July movement would go from nascent political party to exiled guerrilla army to finally the legitimate government of the only communist nation in the Western Hemisphere. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 81, The 26th of July Movement. Okay, Race, getting to know you question, what is your favorite scent? So there's um, a few ways I could answer this, but I made cookies tonight. Mmm. And I love making cookies. I'm not much of a baker because some of that gets really complicated, but cookies are so easy. Like it's the first thing most people and maybe the only thing people ever bake because they're pretty easy to kind of master. And I have a recipe that I've really dialed in. Like I've tweaked things, changed some amounts. And I have a recipe for coconut chocolate chip oatmeal cookies. And that smell Maybe it's just because I was, I didn't make those cookies tonight, but I was thinking about this question and I think that might be my favorite. So I love coconut as a a scent. So like if I'm going to go buy a, you know, a hand soap or whatever, and there's a coconut flavor, I'll probably come home with that one. Oh, okay. I love coconut everything. And so, yeah, I'm going to say self-servingly tooting my own horn. My favorite scent is the smell of my uh, tweaked recipe coconut oatmeal chocolate chip cookies they're that they're unbelievable so good. <laughs> they're really good i've i've substituted like i can't remember if it was oil or um crisco or whatever was in there first but i put in coconut oil oh okay. which not That's only makes them extra yeah. coconutty but it also gives them like the perfect amount of chewiness oh i'm getting excited just saying oh so yeah. delicious. shoot i want to chase these <laughs> If you uh, work at the court that I work at, sometimes I bring them in. On sometimes you bring them in, oh, and I've had re- requests for recipes. So this is the uh, the reason I'm tooting my own horn is because nobody ever. I'm not that good at anything else in my whole life where people are like, "You must teach me." <laughs> but these cookies, people people have asked about. That's how you know. Oh, that's a good mm-hmm. good test. And good. I have to give I have to give original credit. My sister in law gave me the recipe, and I, not surprisingly, all I did basically was up the amount of coconut. But my sister-in-law, Rachel, gave it to me. I made a tiny tweak, and they're great. Delicious. Good, good. Now, what about you? This question, by the way, is born out of the fact that I just moved apartments. Mm -hmm. And something um, very particular about me is that I love a good hand soap. And I think we've talked about this before, but... um, I have a lot of um, hand soaps in my apartment because I think that the scent that you have on your hands is like one of the closest things that I have to like deep memories. Yeah. Anytime I smell a soap, I'm like, oh, that immediately takes me back to like X time period when I had that hand soap or whatever. Mm -hmm. So of course, moving into my new apartment, I had to decide which are the hand soaps going to be for this definitive period of change in my life. You have to mark the epic. You have to mark the epic, right? Yeah. And I, so that's where this question is coming from. 
And my answer to this question, I have so many. There are a lot of smells that I really like, but there's a particular soap from Bed Bath, or excuse me, Bath and Body Works called Eucalyptus Mint mm. that has three of my favorite smells in it. One is mint, one is eucalyptus, and one is sage. Nice. And of the three, I think eucalyptus is my favorite. If eucalyptus is in anything, I'll usually get it. I think that is hands down my favorite smell. So is this a soap that you've used before? I've used it before and I've gone back to it because I really like it. It's it's nice and neutral. It smells clean. Eucalyptus has like a, like almost like a cooling smell. It's hard yeah. to describe, you know. Yeah. But it's a good it's good soap. Well, when we inevitably launch our line of personal care products we, <laughs> we can make a coconut eucalyptus foaming gel or something that will take the market by storm use code race and tyler <laughs> for 20 percent off <laughs> oh man that's great Shout out to us, by the way. I think that was the first time we've ever um, done a paid advertisement on this show. <laughs> right. I just gonna we're gonna toot our own horn here. I love the fact that we do not have commercials. <laughs> we yeah. shall never use a uh, promo code for checkout. <laughs> oh, I mean, I... maybe we will. Maybe we'll give in someday, but we have not done so yet. Yeah. If we uh, if we ever sell out, we'll come back and erase this episode <laughs> good plan um okay so today we are talking about the 26th of july movement in our little series here on the cuban revolution last time we talked about uh the period before the revolution cuba's independence the rise of political corruption and a military coup which was led by fulgencio batista Two episodes ago, we talked about what happened after the revolution, which was the Bay of Pigs invasion led by Cuban counter-revolutionaries who were aided by the CIA. And today for this episode, we'll talk about what happened in between those two things. Mm -hmm. This is the moment of Cuba coming to revolution. There's the rise of Fidel Castro leading an offense against the dictator, Fulgencio Batista. But uh, what we want to look first as at how the revolution began. So in the months following Batista's military coup, the young lawyer and activist Fidel Castro petitioned the courts for the overthrow of Batista. And he accused Batista of corruption and tyranny. He had some salient points here. Batista was not democratically elected. If you remember last episode, uh, signs actually pointed to the opposite. During the election, he was last place among all the candidates, and he came in with a military coup and then canceled the election. So it's not like he had the voter mandate there. Um, also, just logistically, Cuba was plagued at the time by high unemployment and limited water infrastructure. And Batista was not doing anything to fix those issues. And instead, what he spent his time on in office 
was forming lucrative connections with organized crime. And he allowed American companies to dominate the economy, especially in sugar production, rather than emphasizing Cuba's own companies. So Fidel Castro fights pretty hard uh, to get Batista thrown out. Uh, but unfortunately, his request was turned down by the Cuban courts. Now, we in the United States know a lot about the court system this week. Everybody's been reading for the past couple of days. Yeah. Um, and Wikipedia does not give any details here, but I have to say I would love to read the justification from the courts as to why Castro didn't have a case. Because it seems to me like he does. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'd be really interested to hear what they said. I don't even know if they wrote that down. Honestly, who knows? Yeah, I mean, we talked about the corruption last time. So maybe it was like, my brother-in-law, I mean, President Batista. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is one of those times when I'm going to complain at Wikipedia real quick. In that the, some of these articles can be kind of thin. And I wish we had some more details. Yeah. I don't know why that is. I think sometimes they're just, you know, there's not a source for it or something. For sure. Anyways, so Castro, turned away by the courts, uh, becomes radicalized. He believes in this moment that Batista's regime cannot be removed by legal means. And so in order to remove it, he's going to have to go illegal. So fast forward to a year later, July 1953, and the Moncada Barracks in Santiago de Cuba which is a barracks that houses, you know, military personnel. Everybody is sleeping peacefully in the twilight hour of five o'clock in the morning. Five o'clock in the morning in the army. I don't know. Maybe some soldiers are already waking up. That seems kind of early, though. I don't know. But uh, it's very peaceful early on in the day. And suddenly a caravan of 16 automobiles emerges on the road from the west. And the design of the caravan was deliberate here. This is the kind of thing that uh, they would typically do when sending a high-ranking military official from mm -hmm. the Cuban military from Havana down to Santiago. And Havana, by the way, is on the northwest corner of the island of Cuba. And Santiago is on the very opposite end, the southeast corner. So you've got the two basic... Uh, urban centers of Cuba, Havana and Santiago. And in this case, the caravan is coming towards Santiago. I've always thought that Cuba kind of looks like like a witch's finger, like kind of a long spindle. Oh, like crooked? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, um, Havana's up kind of like by the fingernail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, and Santiago's way down where like it connects to the rest of the hand yeah the joint <laughs> yeah and and bay of pigs would be kind of right in the crook of the finger like oh that. you're right yeah one of the yeah. little little edges there like the knuckle underside yeah. of the knuckle <laughs> so there's a 16 vehicle caravan everyone in the caravan is dressed in the blue uniforms of the cuban military this was not exactly what it meant to be because the uniforms had been stolen and the members of the caravan were not military personnel at all. They were Fidel Castro and a band of rebels. And they were driving towards the barracks intent on taking it and taking all of the weapons inside. For the past year, ever since he was turned away from the courts, Castro had been training rebels as guerrilla soldiers. 
and he now had a group of 135 men. And the plan was they would send 20 men to take the civilian hospital around the barracks. They would send five men to take the Palace of Justice. And then they would send the remaining 90 men, led by Castro himself, into the barracks to capture the barracks, take the weapons, and take the radio transmitter that was inside the barracks. It sounds like a pretty good plan, and it sounds like they're able to do it. But unfortunately, the caravan meets problems before they even reach the door. So the caravan in the drive gets separated, and the vehicle that had all of the heavy weapons gets lost. And then when that vehicle gets lost, there are men as a result who don't have a weapon. So anybody who doesn't have a weapon then has to get out and stay behind. And they get to another problem. Castro's car drives up to the gate of the barracks, but when he gets to the gate, there's a mob of soldiers who's already there and they've been alerted to the presence of an attack. And instead of waiting in the car at this point to be allowed through the gate and pass through and try to get inside, uh, the men in the vans jump out of the cars thinking that the attack has already been started and that the barracks has been infiltrated. And this is where Castro says this is where they uh, things really went wrong. Went wrong. It sounds like they shared like a strategist with the Bay of Pigs invasion a little bit. Oh, I think so. Right. <laughs> like they're reading from the same book. Like it doesn't matter if you all have the right plan or anything. Like yeah, or like if there's enough weapons or we don't get <laughs> lost. <laughs> yeah. So at the gate, the conflict begins. The alarm is sounded for real the rebels find themselves outnumbered 10 to one. Guns go blazing, 15 soldiers in the army are killed and 23 are wounded. And then on the rebel side, there were nine rebels killed and 11 wounded, four of whom were wounded by friendly fire. 18 of the rebels are captured and immediately executed. And their corpses are strewn throughout the garrison to simulate that the the idea was that they died in combat, even though they had been executed. Hmm. And then a number of rebels escape into the countryside, and this includes Fidel Castro, um, and they are apprehended later, so they don't get away. So then the court system comes back to Fidel Castro, and they try him and 121 other defendants, um, most of whom are rebels, but some of whom are just rebel aides. 51 of the defendants are rebels who survived the attack. Six were rebels who remained in hiding, and I don't actually know what happened to them. I don't know if they ever got found. Hmm. And then the other 65 were people who didn't go to the barracks. These were political leaders, activists, who had contributed, contributed ideologically to the efforts, but who weren't actually there on the ground. And I thought it was interesting that one of these people actually includes one of the ex-presidents that we talked about in our last episode, Carlos Prio Socoras. And you'll remember him because he was the one who stole 25% of the budget for his own <laughs> financial gain. Which is not the superlative you want. Are you the president who stole yeah. the budget? <laughs> so even he <laughs> is on the side of the rebels saying we need to get Batista out. Wow. The trial goes as as you would expect it, uh, Castro and all of his friends are thrown in jail. And at this point, it seems like the revolution is totally squashed. 
Castro is behind bars. His whole group is behind bars. And there they're going to stay. But the lesson that Batista would soon learn was this. He should not have kept these prisoners alive. So Tyler's little cliffhanger there is exactly right. Um, Bautista in that moment or, you know, upon capturing all of these people and sending a message to them um, by leaving them alive, I guess you could call it like a half measure. Like they were trying to overthrow the government, but we've taken care of it. And we're pretty confident this is all behind us. Um, What he didn't realize was that this was going to transition into something called the 26th of July movement which would then go on to um, have an even greater ripple effect. So um, let's back up a little bit and we'll talk about the 26th of July movement. So the 26th of July movement um, is a, a revolutionary organization that later became a political party. Um, and it gets its name from, uh, it's commemorating the attack on the barracks that Tyler just told us about, which took place on the 26th of July, 1953. Um, and so, you know, it'd be sort of like having the 4th of July political party or something like that in the United States. Like this is a significant date for our movement. So we're the 26th of July, uh, movement. Um, and it was headed by a guy named Fidel Castro and you might ask, but I thought he was in jail. Well, like Tyler (laughs) said, maybe he should have, um, um, been executed by Bautista. Bautista had known what was going to happen. So in 54, so this is after the, um, the attack on the barracks and Fidel Castro's in jail, there was an election. Nobody really challenged Bautista because, you know, they kind of knew what the result, if, if Bautista doesn't look like he's going to win, he takes his ball and goes home or in other words, <laughs> you know, overthrows the election and just like, no, I won. Election and, canceled. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you do not settle down back there, I will turn this country around and we will not have elections. tonight. <laughs> and so nobody runs against him. So in that sense, it's kind of viewed as like an, an illegitimate election. Um, but but some there was a growing opposition voice to him, despite the fact that the elections weren't really legitimate. And the people who were opposing Batista, these so Castro supporters, kind of by default, um, were like, "Look, we need to give amnesty to these guys who tried to overthrow the barracks." Like it went disastrously. They were outnumbered ten to one, and the results bore that out. Like they they got totally squashed. I can't help but think that's part of it, right? Because you wouldn't want to let loose like a powerful leader of many, many, many people. But it's like, this was just this little thing that happened. We've, we put them in jail. They learned their lesson. Let's just move on. And so um, motivated in part by the good public like image that um, Bautista would get. Um, he was like, yeah, let's do it. So um they thought Castro's no more threat. And on um, the 15th of May, 1955, the prisoners were released. Um, and that would prove to be a great mistake if your business model is keeping Cuba <laughs> under <laughs> corrupt presidents and not getting Cuba overthrown by um, communist guerrillas. So um, there's a lot we could go into about what happened kind of in the meantime. Um, 
Fidel Castro ended up in Mexico for part of this. He went and, you know, did a lot of reading, was kind of um, exposed to even more revolutionary ideas. He studied, you know, the works of Marx and Lenin, all those people. Um, they went to Mexico. Um, he, w- he was there with his brother and they were like, hey, there's this doctor from Argentina. He's really great. Uh, he's interested in all that stuff you're reading about, Fidel. Um, come meet Che Guevara. And so, um, you know, it was sort of this perfect little storm of of Fidel being let out of jail and then finding himself in a place where he gets, you know, introduced to all these people. And um, and Guevara had skills in guerrilla warfare and whatnot. So that's kind of where the 26th of July movement comes from or at least that's sort of its um its opening um one of the interesting things that i learned about this was that one of the people who was running for office when bautista decided to cancel that election that you know kind of that inciting moment uh was fidel castro he was a candidate he he wanted to be in the legislature and then they canceled the elections and he's like well that's not fair (laughs) which is uh which is really funny and kind of a a testament to like what you were saying tyler he's like well i tried doing this all the right way right like i was gonna get involved i was gonna take office and try and affect change and then you canceled elections and we tried to push back on that and that still didn't work so i guess we're gonna have to take over you know these barracks um but then that didn't work but, you know, inspired by the memory of what happened on the 26th of July, 26th of July movement is born. Um, I'm going to take a quick flag of the world sidetrack to just say, if you go to the 26th of July movement Wikipedia page, it has possibly the worst flag of all time. <laughs> um, and, you know, you can't blame them in, in, um, in the middle of a, of a guerrilla war. I don't expect you to have great graphic designers, but it's just a red and black um standard with m-26-7 it looks more like a license plate than anything else and um it stands in stark contrast to the flag of cuba which i think is actually one of the best world flags Mm. the the current flag of cuba is really great it's got these nice kind of light blue sky blue stripes it's got the the um the little chevron deal coming from the side and it's a star it's very similar um, to the flag of Puerto Rico, which you can go read about the connections there. There's actually reasons why they they resemble one another. Um, you know and- what makes this flag good too, in a way that the United States flag is not. Uh, a child can draw this. Yep, yep, and that is one of the kind of um, benchmarks for a good flag. Yeah. Oh, it, okay. Yeah, it's easily reproduced. Like you, you. From a distance, you can tell everything that's on it. it. There should never be any writing or letters on a flag. Oh. Which huh. many, many flags break that rule. There shouldn't be any, like, depictions unless they're extremely simple. Like, I think the most complicated you can get away with, in my opinion, is, like, the Canadian maple leaf. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Like, it's mostly angular. There's Emblematic. It's not yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, you could reproduce it pretty easily. But, like, beyond that... Don't get me like, don't get me started on the flag of Belize. Worst flag in the whole world. Oh, OK. Not great. Not great. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I think we have to do a series on national flags. Oh, I could talk all about it. I have favorite flags. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm looking at the Belize flag now. It is terrible. It's bad. Um, <laughs> the flag of Haiti is also very bad. Oh, I, I know I've noticed I think that um, 
there's some interesting like clusterings because the flags of Africa by and large are excellent. Oh, there's, oh, okay. Some of my very favorite flags are from Africa and some of my least favorite flags are from Central America and the Caribbean. Oh, wow. Like I love Guatemala a lot, but the Guatemala flag isn't great. It's bad. Yeah. The Honduran, oh no, the Honduran flag is good. El Salvador is not great. Nicaragua is bad. A lot of the um, some of the some of the Caribbean countries are good. Um, Saint Lucia is really cool. The Bahamas is really cool, but like Haiti is bad and Belize is bad. So yeah, we'll have to do a whole. <laughs> we could do a whole wow. Saint Lucia flag. is really. I mean, we're down the rabbit hole here, but <laughs> the Saint Lucia flag is really cool. It's neat, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, I like that. The other really cool one from the Caribbean is Barbados. Oh, okay. It's got a trident on it. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> but Cuba has got has got it together now, and they have a really great kind of light blue and white flag with a red chevron and a star, and it looks cool. But 26th of July movement, uh, you can judge their ideas for yourselves. I have, I, I, I will offer no opinion, but their flag, we're just, at the podcast, we are vehemently anti 26 because it's bad um so um it gets organized um by castro after he's you know unwisely i would say let out of jail by uh, batista looking for kind of some good press um and castro's at the head um he organized um he, he had already organized this attack with sort of an underground, for obvious reason, group of guerrilla fighters. And it was essentially that sort of same framework that arises. Um, who are the others who are with him? Well, there's his brother, Raul. Um, there's the um, Argentinian Marxist that we've already discussed, Che Guevara, that they meet in Mexico. There's somebody else whose name is probably will come up a couple times in this episode and maybe in our next discussion as well. Um, a man named Camilo Cienfuegos. Um, and then there's actually two women that I was reading about on the Wikipedia page that were super interesting, um, that were listed as founding members and kind of big players in the, um, 26th of July movement, one named Melba Hernandez and the other was Heidi Santa Maria. And, um, they both fought like that day with guns in their hands alongside Castro, um, attacking the barracks, which is kind of cool. And they went on to be like, you know, huge heroes and, elder statesmen in Cuba um, as they, as their side eventually won and um, spoiler alert for the whole series, if case you weren't aware. And um, they went on to, you know, be kind of national heroes in Cuba and two really cool, like awesome ladies. who were there fighting that day. Um, And so the 26th of July movement is just made up of people angry about Bautista, uh, Bautista's abuses. So we got young communists, free thinkers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, People's, you know, disappointed by the poverty and you know at their at, down to their kind of last um last drop of patience with the government and, and it's pretty easy to build i would say to build a coalition when the opposition is someone really unlikable right like that's typically pretty easy and batista yeah. is you know a huge jerk he's pretty un, unpopular like you said tyler even the corrupt past presidents are like we gotta get rid of this guy <laughs> Um, and, um, the 26th of July, um, movement people are people angry enough to gather together to organize for, you know, um, for violence to, to be an actual revolutionary, um, group. And what did they want? Well, 
the things that all young communist Marxist Leninist types want. They wanted better distribution of land to the peasants. They wanted to nationalize public service, industrialize. They wanted honest elections, take that out of Bautista's hands, um, education reform, that kind of stuff. And so that's where this movement comes from. It's built um, by these sort of young people with, of course, the, as Nixon said, this charismatic Fidel Castro, who's just a natural leader of men. Um, but it's enhanced by, um, well, first of all, Castro is more radicalized, more, you know, um, he's educated himself in the sort of the ways of socialism and whatnot. And um, he's also met these important players like Che Guevara, and he's built up um, this level of support. I can't imagine that um, that being thrown in prison helped, or I, I have to imagine that that helped him kind of get this fame you know he's like i i w- went into battle once and they caught me and they tried to hold me down but i'm back baby you know and like mm-hmm. that's kind of a, a romantic um the comeback kid. Yeah. yeah exactly and like and i'm here and i'm i'm gonna do it again and so um yeah that's that's the uh the 26th of july movement which is a a major um it's kind of the story of the cuban revolution really because it's 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 it changes names and it changes composition, but it basically becomes the new the government of the new um, the new republic once the revolution is over. So this is the main body of of believers that bring this all to pass. That's the 26th of July movement, and they really start to wreak havoc on Batista's regime. And there's a bunch of really interesting skirmishes that you can read about on Wikipedia where, so the 26th of the July movement goes into the Sierra Maestra mountains and just kind of camps out for a good while. And uh, like when they can, they send guerrilla soldiers down to attack the government. Um, there's a lot of fighting that happens in the mountains. I don't know uh, what you think, Race, but my opinion of this is it kind of seems like this beehive where you've got like Castro leading everybody in, in his own hive up in the mountains. And every now and then they come down and they sting on uh, Batista's government. Yeah, for sure. And this is kind of a model that like you see throughout history, like, well, we might not be able to like just engage in out and out battle, but like mm-hmm. we can be the Taliban hiding in the mountains and in the caves. And you can't, if you can't get rid of us, then yeah, we, we at least kind of have like a, maybe a stalemate thing going on. So yeah. yeah, That's a good point. So that's, ex- that's exactly what they're doing is they're this presence in the mountains that can't be overrun. Um, and finally, Batista leads uh, a military operation to get them out. And this operation is called Operation Verano. Verano in Spanish meaning summer. And the operation was named this because it took place in the summer. Not a very creative name, I have to say, but, you know, whatever. I'm not trying to take sides here on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But Operation Verano sends 12,000 soldiers, half of whom are untrained recruits, into the mountains. Hmm. Half sounds like an ominous a lot (laughs) to me but i don't know much about war 
Uh, but 6,000 of these men were untrained, so they didn't know how to use a gun, I guess. Uh, but it's still a lot of people, and Castro definitely didn't have that, that kind of number. Um, in the mountains, he never had more than 300 soldiers at once. So it's wow. always a much smaller band. Uh, there's various skirmishes that happen as a uh, part of Operation Verano. And if you read about each of them, it's just one after the other is just some miraculous victory because Castro's group was able to outmaneuver a much larger group. Mm-hmm. There's an example of this in the Battle of La Plata when Castro's guerrillas defeated a 500-man battalion and they captured 240 of the men and they only lost three of their own. Hmm. So there was clearly an advantage here. Castro's uh, group knew the terrain. Uh, I think they were using the high ground to their advantage a lot of the time. And they also seemed to be driven by a, a real desire to win, whereas a group of untrained recruits obviously isn't going to have the same kind of uh, chutzpah, right? Yeah. Again, that's another tale as old as time. Like, well, this is our turf and we have, you know, a little more fire to us. And even though we're outnumbered, we are basically smarter and just have like home field advantage that plays out in most conflicts, right? Like, right. And any military I've been reading and following some like, people who study military strategy regarding uh, for the purpose of kind of understanding more about what's happening in Ukraine right now. And there's like statistics now that like military analysts have done that. It's like, Oh yeah, if you're attacking an entrenched enemy, like if you're going up against somebody who's all set up on their turf, it's going to take, you know, for, for every embedded soldier there. So if there's a thousand guys in these mountains, you need, you know, I don't know what the numbers are exactly, but it's like, it's, it's like nine to one that if you want to get up there and, and do it. And so it is miraculous that with that few men, they, they held them off, but it also is borne out by the fact that that's just kind of how that works. You know, if you're, if you're up there, but it's also interesting because they were super outnumbered. I mean, I guess it proves the point of like having home field advantage or whatever, because they were super outnumbered on the attack at the, barracks and that did not go well at all (laughs) yeah that did not go their way and that where that that in that instance the being outnumbered really was to their disadvantage but here like you said they're they're winning still right uh and they just keep on winning that's the thing that happens there's another battle the last battle of operation verano is the battle of las mercedes and it's interesting in that it's designed as a trap So the plan is that by using the terrain in a certain way, they're going to lure Castro's group into this specific spot and then descend on them and kill them all. Um, And long story short, they lose this. Castro's group outmaneuvers the great army once again, and Castro wins the battle, and uh, Operation Verano at this point is over. So the military's failure in Operation Verano uh, is pretty critical here. It doesn't just mean that Castro is still on the run and still around, still bothering Batista, but it also means that Batista, as a result, looks very weak here. And he looks like someone who can lose even when he has the advantage, which is exactly what happened in the mountains. 
He tried to kill Castro uh, when he had the advantage of outnumbering the men, and he still lost. So Operation Verano here was, for the rebels, it was a booster shot of courage. And it was also an omen for the immediate future, because Castro would then take control of Cuba only four months later. So I can tell you exactly how that came to an end and how Castro took control of Cuba. Um, and it's a, it's a really interesting story and it's, we're brushing over a lot. Somebody who's got a PhD in Cuban history or whatever is like banging their head against their desk. But, <laughs> but um, we can fast forward a little bit to the battle of Santa Clara, which is the final kind of domino um, that took out Batista booted him out and and ended up with um, Fidel Castro's band of people in power. So like Tyler said, Castro's in the mountains. He's vastly outnumbered, uh, outnumbered, um, but that hasn't made a huge difference so far. And there have been some embarrassing um, and pretty public kind of losses on Batista's part. It's kind of a stalemate. Like I was saying earlier, like we're not going to come up there and get you, or if we try, it's probably not going to go well, but you're also not, super incentivized to come out of your strongholds and attack us, you know, and you're not going to just march to Havana one day, like that would be really risky for you. And so we're kind of in this weird stomach. Well, the battle of Santa Clara was when the rebels, uh, mainly led by Che Guevara and um, Camilo Sinfuegos, took the city of Santa Clara. So Santa Clara's um, um kind of in the middle of Cuba like I said if it's if you're thinking of it as a finger it's kind of there at like the middle knuckle and the mountains that the uh, that Castro and everybody were in were more towards the south so this is an advance and it's definitely an escalation um because they're you know coming out and actually taking a city and um as they traveled towards the city of Santa Clara they were cheered on by groups of peasants as they came out of the mountains so that's very interesting um, and of course, kind of it, it, that has to be the way that this story goes, because if they didn't have kind of broader popular appeal, it probably wouldn't have worked out for them in the end the way that it does, even if they had won a victory. But there were people that knew of them up in the mountains and that were inspired by that and um, were supporting them. So um, they and the reason they're traveling to this city, this, you know, um, almost ran, seemingly random city was that um, there was an armored train. Um, this is at least part of the reason being sent by Batista to reinforce um, the garrison there or whatever. So it had ammunitions, weapons, and other um, equipment on it. And that was part of this plan was that Guevara go down and we're going to take this train um, and that will sort of the same idea about the barracks. Like not only are we going to strike a blow, but we're also going to basically resupply ourselves um, in the in the effort. So um, Guevara was particularly enthused by capturing this train. Um, he knew that it would be a huge boost to them. Um, and so they actually or, um, derailed the train using bulldozers. And so yeah. the train, you know, kind of comes off. Um, it, the train also was 
carrying soldiers, um, Cuban soldiers. And so um, it's derailed and um, the officers on the train come out and ask for a truce. They're waving their little white flag and they're like, look, you got us. Like we're, we're all, you know, crammed in these train cars. And so they surrender. Um, the it falls to the hands of the rebels. They've got 350 men um, held as prisoners, and and they've got the weaponry right, um, which was a huge a huge boost to them. So the capture of the train was um, not only tactically really great, but it was also it just makes a good story, right? It's almost like mm-hmm. a, you know the great train robbery or whatever. So you can imagine going out over the radio, and there was a um, a revolutionary kind of radio. Um, pr- system that was broadcasting pro Castro stuff, um, and so that these are the stories that are going out, right? Which was um, the rebels have taken this train and they've they've done all this stuff. Um, as the attack continued, the vast majority of soldiers that were encountered just surrendered. The Cuban soldiers just turned over their weapons. Um, not a lot of reason given for that, except for. Um, I mean, my guesses are first that, like you said, Tyler, maybe it was just a lack of training. Like maybe these just weren't the best soldiers or whatever. Um, There were also, it was kind of an overwhelming attack as far as I can see, despite the fact that they were outnumbered, it was very well planned. So they shut down this whole train that was coming in with extra supplies and extra soldiers. They just cut that off the pass. And um, as far as I can see, there were no... Cuban soldiers killed. Wikipedia oh, wow. lists that there were thousands captured because they s- began surrendering. Like basically, anytime they'd come across an installation where they they were expecting resistance, they would just come out and be like, "We don't want to fight you guys. Take it." <laughs> and so, wow, wow. almost three thousand Cuban soldiers were captured, but there must have been it seems very little combat because um, while the numbers aren't known for the rebels. There was a train destroyed, about 3,000 soldiers taken captive, but no word of deaths on the Cuban side. So that's super interesting. Um, and you might think that like, okay, fine. So they come out of the hills and they, um, they take this one city, they get whatever, but there's still only 350 of them. But fascinatingly, um, this attack and the, the victory over, um, over the city absolutely terrifies Batista mm-hmm. and he makes a move um, which again so I as we've been talking there's several times where it's like if you had just done this a little differently this all would have gone yeah. like if you just <clears throat> just executed Castro or whatever and here I will say if you had just I think that if um, if Batista had stayed in Cuba, and so spoiler alert, he fled Cuba at the fall of Santa uh, And it, he, if he had stayed, I feel like, I mean, they just, there were still only a few hundred of these guys and they were scary and they were led by this like charismatic dude or whatever, but um, you can't leave. Like the president left. And so yeah. the rebels were, um, you know, encouraged and the soldiers were like, well, the president left. What are we supposed to do? You know, you can <laughs> kind of see how that would just lead to like a domino effect. Um, again, this I kind of can't help but think of um, the war in Ukraine 
a similar thing happened in Ukraine where, or um, has happened in that region before. So like Russia did basically what it is doing to Ukraine right now in Belarus, but the yeah. president just kind of left and it was just like, yeah, okay. You like, we're not going to try and fight the Russian military. What do you think we are crazy? And yeah. so it was just like, yeah, Ukraine or um, Belarus was just like a road apple for, for Russia. But then with Ukraine, it was like the president Zelensky was like, I'm not leaving. And we're going to be the dudes in the in the hills like this is our land. We have the advantage and we're not leaving. So super interesting. But, um, you know, people, a lot of commentators will say Zelensky staying was a big point of kind of courage and and um, made a big deal for the the optics of this movement. And similarly here, Batista leaving Cuba, that's just awful optics. And it kind of led to um, the collapse or it certainly couldn't have helped. Um, the train that was disrailed and all of that is actually now a museum. <laughs> and like the train itself is the museum. So you like go inside the train cars and you can see and it tells the story of it, of the whole um, kind of taking of Santa Clara, which was basically the final blow um, of the revolution itself. And so um, if I ever make it to Cuba, which I don't think will happen anytime too soon, <laughs> I would love to go see this. I think that's kind of cool. Um but yeah, it led to the um, to the entire capture of the city, and as they as they rolled in, the um, the rebels who they just kind of took over the city, and and that was basic. It wasn't that wasn't the day that this all happened, or the the days in which this all happened wasn't the actual end, but it was essentially the end of Batista in Cuba because well, he left, and so. Um, we now have an energized um, rebellion that is clearly popular with the people. It was cheered on as it traveled down the highway or whatever. Um, they've captured a city. The president has fled. And so essentially, Cuba has fallen into the hands of the 26th of July movement. And um, the revolution is um, has succeeded on the part of of the rebels with this final battle of Santa Clara. And um, now we just get to decide who wears the big president hat, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know, but that's, um, that's how the, that's kind of the, the evolution of the 26th of July movement from a, we're still mad at you. Um, Batista into actively taking the city, forcing the, f- the flight of the president and essentially becoming, you know, the new government in Cuba. Now for some footnotes. First, Batista's decision to release Castro and the other prisoners came about as a result of a petition written by the prisoners' mothers, who got together and launched a campaign to free their sons. This sparked popular support for the rebels, which inspired political leaders, intellectuals, editors, and many others to join the campaign. Faced with the compounding momentum of this campaign, Batista yielded to the public and set the prisoners free. Second, we glossed over the Battle of Las Mercedes, but the details of the battle are really juicy. It was a victory for Castro, but it shouldn't have been. He lost 70 of his men in the fighting and was totally surrounded by the Cuban army. But then Castro requested a ceasefire, even offering to end the war. He met with Batista's representative and discussed negotiations for ending the fighting. The negotiations got nowhere, but Castro's troops did. 
During the six nights of negotiations, they snuck away unnoticed by the army. When the army resumed its attack, there was no one left to fight. Castro and his troops had disappeared. Thanks so much for listening. We love making these episodes for you guys, and we'll talk at you next time.